Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people. The whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit. They began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. They heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment to pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us into these spaces here this morning on Easter Sunday. We ask you, Holy Spirit, the very Spirit that raised Jesus from the tomb, to dwell within us now to help us to understand this, your living and true word. Lord, would we hear as we gather for worship the welcome of a Jesus who died and rose again for us and for our salvation. Be glorified now, we pray. In these moments of the preaching and hearing from your scriptures, would we hear from you? We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Well, happy birthday, Liberty Collingswood. You might not know it, but we actually launched. We are a recent church plant. Our first Sunday of regular worship was nine years ago. Easter of 2013. Some of you were there. Most of you were not. They said it couldn't be done. And it almost didn't happen because of this conversation that I'm about to relate to you. So it was in 2012, I was ministering in the western part of Texas at the time, where conversations began for me and my family to move it back up to this area into Collingswood and plant this church. I had been talking to Steve Huber, the director then and now of the Liberty Communion of Churches, and things were progressing and feeling good for me and Steve. 
it was time to bring other Liberty pastors into the conversation to get them also to sign off on this guy from Texas moving up here to plant the church. And I was told that there is some skepticism from some of the other pastors and leaders. Hey, here on the East Coast, the Liberty Churches were trying to reach educated skeptics and other people for the gospel. Are we going to get this cowboy in here who's going to totally be a culture clash with everything that we're trying to do up in this neck of the woods? So a very important conversation was between myself, Steve Huber, and the next person to get involved was Jared Ayers, then the pastor of Liberty Church Center City. And we really needed Jared to get excited about Jim. The conversation began on the phone. And Jared said, I'd never met Jared before, never talked to him. Jared said, at the very beginning of the conversation, Jim, I hear that you're a Bruce Springsteen fan, singer-songwriter from New Jersey. And Jared said, you know what? And Easter had just happened. He said, I actually quoted from a Bruce Springsteen song during my Easter sermon. And I said, yeah, was it Atlantic City? And he said, yeah, how do you know? I said, well, everything dies. Maybe that's a fact. And maybe everything that dies someday comes back. He said, yeah. And I said, it's kind of obvious. <laughs> and then there was this pause, awkwardly, and Steve Huber said, Jared, I should have told you that Jim likes to make a lot of jokes. That was a joke, right, Jim? And I was like, no. <laughs> so the conversation happened, and then afterwards, I called Steve and said, Steve, what did Jared think of me? And he said, well, Jared said about you, Jim, he's weird but I don't dislike him. And I said, that's my jam, Steve. This is going to work. This is going to be great. So I'm going to talk to you about Bruce Springsteen here for a minute to start the sermon, but not Atlantic City, obvious. How many of you have heard the Bruce Springsteen song, The Promise? Okay, I see no hands. This also is one of my jams. I'm feeling comfortable. The Promise. One of the great lost Bruce songs, I'm a Bruce Springsteen fan, it's true, recorded in 1977. It was recorded after the Born to Run album, which was Bruce's big success, but then left off the next album, 1978's Darkness on the Edge of Town. This was a tumultuous period for Bruce. He did have that success. There used to be magazines. In October of 1975, Bruce was on the cover of Time and Newsweek the same week right? But fame and success was not all that it was cracked up to be for Bruce. He still didn't have any money because of some shenanigans with the record company. He was feeling pretty empty inside, and he was embroiled in this really big lawsuit with that record company and his manager because of said shenanigans. And so The Promise is a song in which the antagonist keeps on living even though he feels like he's born to lose. The promise is about when you get to that place and you discover that life, which seemingly promises all of these great things to you, those promises are a lie. And life is just a bunch of ugliness all the way through. And story has it that Bruce left that song off of Darkness on the Edge of Town at the time because it was too autobiographical. And from that song, The Promise, I heard it in high school, a cassette copy of a bootleg 
that I got from my brother who got it from his tennis coach who got it from his brother-in-law. That's how we rolled back then. And there's a line, the protagonist in the song, a loser, driving from nowhere to nowhere, and he says at one point, I felt like I was carrying the broken spirits of all the other ones who lost. I felt like I was carrying the broken spirits of all the other ones who lost. Now, that line may or may not strike you in a context like this. It really resonated with me. And admittedly, at one level, there's a little bit of rock and roll messiahship going on there. When Bruce inducted U2 into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, he gave the induction speech, and he was teasing Bono, the lead singer, a little bit, and said, Bono, you have this hugely narcissistic, egotistical, rock and roll messiah complex. Then Bruce paused and said something like, takes one to know one, brother. So, inside the song, felt like I was carrying the broken spirits of all the other ones who lost. But I also heard in that lyric, the weight of collective failure. And even as a young person, I thought, that fits. There's a lot of failure in me. There's a lot of failure in the world. And I need somebody to carry that for me. And so that's the question that we're going to ponder here for a couple of minutes this morning. Who's going to carry you? Who's going to carry you? And that's an important question. I mentioned at our Good Friday service, if you were there for that or watching online, we only think happy thoughts here at Liberty Collingswood all the time. You're a failure. And so am I. We're all failures. Who's going to carry us? For example, if you're here this morning or watching online as a Christian, welcome. I don't presume that all of you are. Welcome to everybody, no matter where you are spiritually. Many of us tried to do different things for Lent, to abstain, to put down certain practices. And I would imagine that for a lot of us, that lasted maybe three or four days. And we failed. Didn't follow through. But then maybe for others of us, where we did follow through, with those Lenten practices all the way till today, you might be thinking, where's the pop? I thought I was going to be spiritually transformed or different, but I'm not really. Or maybe you've tried other sorts of initiatives that just didn't give you the payoff that you thought, or you didn't follow through, or you failed at it. Here's the thing, even at a larger level, it can feel like to us, I think, that life amounts to maybe not a whole lot more than an ongoing accumulation of failures. We just keep messing up, and then we cover up, and then we keep messing up, and then we cover up some more. That's the cycle that we're in. And I think I said in a sermon a few weeks ago, it can feel like the more we live, the more damage is done to us, the more damage that we cause, the more wounds that we accrue, and it's half victories at best. And you might be at a phase right now where you're on the younger side, maybe you haven't failed too much, or maybe you're in a season of life where you're feeling a lot of successes. That's awesome. But I would say there's even for you a non-zero chance where there could be a voice in the back of your head saying, you're a sham. You're a phony. Or, this success is fleeting. It's not really going to last. 
for any amount of time at all. And so it's Easter Sunday. It's our birthday, like I mentioned, for our church. First Sunday of gathered worship here at Liberty Collingswood since 2019. All of that stuff is great. But we're still coming out of Lent. And so into this Sunday morning, here in the room and online, we're carrying forward a lot of wilderness inside of us. A lot of pain. A lot of sin. Let Jesus carry you. Let Jesus carry you. He's worthy, and we need to worship him. So two parts for the rest of the sermon from here. Two questions. Who's going to carry you and why we gather for worship? So a who and a why. Who's going to carry you and why we gather for worship? So this is the ending of a sermon series that we went through all through Lent, talking about various practices of presence. In the fall of this past year, we launched at Liberty Collingswood a relaunch of our church, the Represence Initiative, where we're moving forward into a post-COVID and post-Christian reality, resilient disciples in this moment in our world. And in Lent, we've been talking through various practices of presence. How do we take steps forward, either as new or veteran Christians? And this is the last practice of presence we're going to talk about, gathered worship, culminating that sermon series. And I think gathered worship is so appropriate for a Sunday morning like this, because we've been saying that on Easter morning, we are going to meet the risen Jesus, and we're going to worship him, and it's going to be great. So here we are. And thinking about gathered worship, I gravitated towards a passage that I read to you, Revelation chapter 5, because in this passage, we have a scene, the throne room of heaven, a worship service, a worship situation par excellence, the very beginning of the chapter once again. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. You see, and here we are in the book of Revelation, worship scene after worship scene occurs, including at the end of the chapter when you have the angels and all the creatures and the elders, the myriads of myriads, the thousands of thousands, exploding into praise, worthy is the lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, blessing. Or verse 13, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. It's a lot of worship. And so it is here in Revelation chapter 5. If you know a little bit about the book, it's okay if you don't. Beginning of Revelation, this is the revelation given to the Apostle John, who wrote the gospel of the same name and also 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John letters. John relays from Jesus seven letters to seven churches. That's happened so far. And then the rest of the book is an unfolding of this scroll. John has been commissioned, whatever you see revealed here witness and write down for the churches of all time. And this scroll, the whole thing about the scroll is that it's God's purposes for history, God's secret agenda. And so as the scroll is opened and read in the rest of Revelation, we see that Jesus is going to win. We see that God judges the nations and especially those people that persecute the church. We see at the very end of Revelation, the new heavens and new earth, new Jerusalem coming down from heaven when God renews all of creation. We have that vision. And make no mistake, maybe you thought this when I was reading through this passage. This passage, 
like the book of Revelation in general, it's wild. It's really, really crazy. It's far out. All of these images and crazy things happening. You might know about illuminated manuscripts from the Middle Ages in Europe, the medieval times. So before the printing press, it was monks and monasteries where to get Bibles out to people, they would hand copy them. But they weren't just hand copying words. They were illuminating or illustrating them. And you could go, primarily in Europe, to these old museums and see these illuminated manuscripts. Monks loved Revelation the best because they could draw these wild dragons and sea creatures and things coming out of the deep and fire in the heavens and all this wild stuff meant to fire, meant to capture the imagination. One commentator about their book of Revelation put it this way about the book. The book of Revelation wages war on the reductionism that chokes awe. We are meant to read this crazy book and be captured and captivated. This is what the victory of Jesus looks and feels like. And there's drama in this passage, too. Who's going to open the scroll? Who's going to open the scroll? Verse 2. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break the seals? The drama builds from there. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And they began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. Who's worthy? Who's worthy to get that deep into the things and reality of God? Why? The Lamb. Jesus is. Verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And this is a verse, a passage, rich with Old Testament biblical echoes. The lion of Judah. Going back to the first book of the Bible, where Jacob, at the end of the book of Genesis, gives words of prophecy about all of his sons, the 12 tribes of Israel, and he says to one of his sons, Judah, Judah, you're a lion, a lion's cub. You're going to get a scepter and rule. Jesus is that lion of Judah. And then also the root of David. That's imagery from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, where in chapter 11, we see there that a shoot shall come forth from the stump of Jesse. Same images here. Only a little bit different, not the stump of Jesse, David's father. Originally, Isaiah was saying that there will come another king in the line of old King David. It's Jesus, not only the climax and culmination of this line, but he's the root of David. He's the archetype all along. He's the source. And this Jesus is worthy to take the scroll. Verses 6 and 7 once again. But between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, that's Jesus, as though it had been slain, seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth, symbols of power. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. This Jesus is worthy. And the language of Revelation to take the scroll, this Jesus is worthy to carry you. This Jesus is worthy of your worship. Jesus is worthy, I'll mention to you, in a couple of different ways. Why is Jesus worthy to you and to me? In himself and by his sacrifice. 
Jesus is worthy in himself to be worshipped because he's God. Jesus, you'll notice in Revelation chapter 5 here, is the object of worship. He is divine. He is the one. And interestingly, this is probably the last book in the New Testament that was written. By this point especially, it's taken for granted that Jesus, who lived and died and rose again among the disciples, is God and therefore to be worshipped. Which also, if you think about it, is completely wild. And I love how effortlessly John just says, yeah, that Jesus, he's God. We worship him. If you skip back just one chapter before, it's God, the Father, that's worshipped. Revelation 4.10, the 24 elders fall down before him, this is God the Father, seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. But then skip ahead to this chapter. It's Jesus, the Son, the Lamb, being worshipped in exactly the same way. Verse 8. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down, same language, before the Lamb. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. This is something for us to reckon with. This is something for us to weigh. Whether you're a veteran Christian and need a little renewal, whether you're still weighing the things of Jesus. It is universally agreed among scholars. And this is among scholars that very much themselves want the Christian story to be true, and then including others that may be indifferent and may not want the Christian story to be true, on the other hand. But there's agreement across the board, no matter your ideological stripe. It's unassailable to say that in the first century... After this figure, Jesus of Nazareth, died on a cross around 30 AD, pretty much immediately afterwards, Jesus was worshipped by Jewish people who believed him to be resurrected. Everybody says, yeah, that happened. The question is, why? Why? And it's crazy to say that happened unless it's true. A couple of quick hit reasons. Why is it so mind-blowing that first-century Jewish people actually worshipped Jesus, whom they saw and knew as a person, as a human being, as a man, as divine? Well, just a little thing called the Ten Commandments, where Commandments 1 and 2, Thou shalt have no other gods before me, except if there's God with us, and we're going to worship him. You shall have no graven images. You shall worship no tactile thing at all, unless it's Jesus. Yeah, we're going to flip the script a little bit and worship him. And the crucifixion. In the first century AD, there were lots of Jewish people who were looking for the Messiah. And if you go back, there were other people that took on that title, even themselves, or were given to them. But nobody, 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 nobody was looking for that Messiah to die on a cross. That wasn't part of the script. It was only after that Jesus was crucified and resurrected that Jewish believers in Jesus went back to the Hebrew scriptures and said, oh, I see the breadcrumb trail. But they weren't looking for it. A resurrection. There were some Jewish people that believed that there would be a resurrection, but that was going to be at the end of history, not in the middle. When there's a resurrection, that's when God finally renews all things. But that hasn't happened yet, and yet we see the beginning of the resurrection. Nobody was looking for that. 
and it's been said by preachers and Christian scholars, the first witnesses of Jesus did so at cost. Most of them were killed. In fact, the only one that wasn't is the author of the book of Revelation, the apostle, the disciple John, exiled yet at Patmos. Why would these first believers in Jesus, Jewish through and through, have worshipped this Jesus as risen and God unless it truly happened? So Jesus is worthy by himself and also by way of his sacrifice because of the cross. Look at verse 9 again. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, died on the cross. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Friends, here's the good news of Jesus. The good news of the gospel. The lamb is the lion. And the lion is the lamb. The lion is the lamb. And the lamb is the lion. The lion of Judah, the great king, the ruler of all things, is the lamb that was slain to give grace and to give mercy. There's the cross that gives that grace and mercy, which is good news because we're failures. More than that, we're sinners. And on the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for sin for all of the children of God throughout the ages, before and after Jesus, that come to him in faith for mercy and forgiveness and renovation. The lion is the lamb. And for every human being, eventually we're going to need somebody to carry us all the way to and through eternity. Who's it going to be for you and for me? This Jesus is worthy to carry us, and that's also why we need to worship him. This is why we gather. There is an invitation here before us this morning and every Sunday morning to join the chorus. Not just to join any chorus, but in a quite literal sense to join this chorus that we read about in Revelation chapter 5, to join the elders and the creatures and all of creation praising the risen Lamb. And it's not too much to say, especially because in Jesus we're going to be doing this forever. The gathered worship of the people of God is the most important thing that you will ever do. As we were talking about practices of presence earlier this year, Eric Mitchell, our executive pastor, put together a lot of great materials about gathered worship. And from those materials, email me, email Eric if you want those materials. They're really awesome. One of the church put it this way about worship. Sunday morning, corporate ritualized worship is the most important thing that you do in your entire life. And it's the most important thing that a church does. It's the central act in the life of God's people. We worship. And you know what? One of the most truly human things that we can do is say thank you. That's what we do when we gather together, to say thank you to God. One of the best books of the 20th century written in the early part of that century, Rebecca West, Gray Falcon and Black Lamb, 
travel log in the Balkan nations where Rebecca West, not a person of faith, at one point witnessed worship in a Slavic church, and she was struck. And this is an incredibly war-torn then and now part of the world, a deeply impoverished congregation yet worshiping Jesus. And I believe this is one of our reflection quotes at the beginning of the worship folder. West writes, from the congregation came a flood of song, which asked for absolutely nothing, which did not pretend that sour is sweet and pain wholesome, but which simply adored. If there be a God who is a fount of all goodness, this is the tribute that should logically be paid to him. And again, the worship was made astonishing by their poor circumstances. These people who had neither wealth nor security, nor ever had had them, stood before their creator and thought not what they might ask for, but what they might give. In worship, we give our thanks to God. And it forms us over and over and over again. What do you think might happen if you join these voices on a rhythmic, regular basis? Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. It forms you. Worship God with the gathered people of God, even on a Sunday morning when you might not feel it. It's still good to do. Real talk from pastors, some Sundays are better than others for me, right? And I'm a pastor for crying out loud. Sometimes when I gather to worship, I'm there. And when I preach and in the songs and in the liturgy and the Lord's table, I am completely locked in. Other times, I'm angry about the eagles, and I'm not really connecting. But I need to come back week after week after week, playing the long game of being formed. Eugene Peterson, a recently deceased pastor, says, put yourself in the way of worship, even when you're not feeling it, to be formed over time. We live in what one writer has called the age of sensation. We think that if we don't feel something, there can be no authenticity in doing it. But the wisdom of God says something different, that we can act ourselves into a new way of feeling much quicker than we can feel ourselves into a new way of acting. Worship is an act that develops feelings for God. When we obey the command to praise God in worship, our deep essential need to be in relationship with God is nurtured. So keep doing it. And that's why it's so important to be together to worship. Thank you for bearing with me through all of these quotes. I have one more for you. A pastor has said it's so important not just to worship God individually, but together. We were made for more than private devotions. We were made to worship Jesus together. Among the multitude, with the great horde, swallowed up in the magnificent mass of the redeemed, God didn't fashion us to enjoy him finally as solitary individuals, but as happy members of a continually large family. And so as we transition from Lent into Eastertide, a new season, perhaps this is a season for you to commit. I'm going to worship and gathered worship more, more regularly, more truly. And maybe that means for you gathering here on a Sunday morning physically more regularly. And I need to speak with nuance here. We're happy to continue to offer online worship, and that's a great thing. And for some of you worshiping online, that's where you should be. Maybe you live far away. Maybe there are health or other prudential considerations where it just makes sense. That's awesome. But maybe for some others of us, 
we're just a little bit lazy and should probably commit to the gathered worship of the people of God more regularly. Be free in your own conscience and be convicted as the Spirit moves. Or when we worship online, do that better. It makes all the difference in the world, whether you're a regular worshiper online or a Sunday comes up when you just got to be at home. Make that the only thing that you do. Hey, how was church this morning? Oh, it was great. I worshiped online while I did the dishes, while I mowed the lawn, while I watched inside the NFL, etc. This is what I'll say. In whatever mode of worship you're doing, be present when you're present. Be present when you're present. And that takes some discipline. That takes some drive. That requires the grace of God and the movement of the Holy Spirit in your life. And we need each other to come together to worship. We need each other as well Because God's design is that he's collecting from all over the world lots of different kinds and colors of worshipers to make this big, diverse family. It's woven into God's plan. You see it again in verse 9. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And this is for us to continue to grow. Last Lenten season, it was a whole focus upon racial reconciliation, where we need to continue to press ahead, where it's different accents and backgrounds and cultures and perspectives. This whole big, messy, crazy family, yet coming together under one Jesus, the true King. And when we come together to worship, We're not coming to receive, we're coming to give our voice. We're coming to give our voice, and we need all of our voices together. You see, before I started following Jesus seriously, occasionally I'd show up at a church service. Sometimes I enjoyed it, sometimes I didn't, but my whole paradigm was, well, I'm not going to go to church today because last time I did and I didn't get anything out of it. Have you ever thought that before? Nah, didn't get anything out of it. I don't blame you if you've thought that way. I've thought that way. It's exactly backwards. We don't go to worship to get something out of it. We go to worship to give, to fight against the consumeristic mentality that is everywhere here in the late modern West. I'm showing up to give, to give thanks to Jesus and to give of myself to others. And we need each other for that too. When we gather for worship, That's where we're carried by Jesus, and also we're carried by other people. Happy birthday, Liberty Collingswood. And there were many times, not many, but punctuated times over the years where I thought, I'm not sure that we're going to make it. But it was the worship of God that carried me. My commute to church is getting a little farther here with our third worship location from the Senior Community Center here in Collingswood to St. Paul's across Haddon Avenue here. My walk is up to eight minutes on a typical Sunday morning. I have to account for traffic now. I didn't used to. But listen, over the years, there have been mornings where I've had to fight down the urge not to walk, not to attend. 
I'm not sure I want to be there. I'm not sure that I should keep doing this. But there are so many times over the years when I've been in that mindset, when it was all of you that made me say, I'm going to do it because you're carrying me. Including our first anniversary, Easter 2014. We were going to have a coffee hour beforehand at the Senior Community Center, the bottom floor we worshipped on the top. The person that was going to get coffee bailed out and said, not only am I not getting coffee, I don't want to come to your church anymore. I said, that's great. So there I was at Wawa being told, sir, you can't just walk in and get these giant boxes of coffee. It's going to take some time. And I was like, I don't have time. Coffee hour at my church is starting right now. And I could see the Wawa counterperson saying, what kind of church are you running here where you need, like, I don't understand. I was sitting there thinking, this is going to be horrible. But it wasn't. It was a great coffee hour, even though the coffee was late. Walking to church on a Sunday morning and meeting our setup people, waking up, especially early when we would meet at 9, 9.30, 10, giving of themselves to come. And you might not know this, but for the first couple of years of Liberty Collingswood, there wasn't a setup rotation or a setup team. There was a setup person who did it week after week after week. I won't say who it was because I don't want to embarrass her. Or coming on a Sunday morning and something one of our men and women liturgists would say that would catch me and say, that's true. I want to be here. Jesus deserves my worship, not because I'm worthy, but because he is. Or a song that we're singing where your voices have lifted me and carried me. Or in the early days of worshiping online where we couldn't gather, when we're interacting and engaging in the chat, and it's just fun to be with each other over that platform or a conversation after church and so on. Liberty Collingswood, you have carried me in worship. And let's keep doing that. We need each other as we look to Jesus who carries us and is worthy of our worship. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed, where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.